Isaiah, the 28th chapter. Hopefully everybody will have a... Um, hopefully everybody will have a handout. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Isaiah, the 28th chapter. Some very, very... Um, Beautiful, beautiful texts in Isaiah, that uh, the 20th chapter. They, um, it certainly is a, a, a setup, a prelude to what's going to be coming in the second, uh, what we call Isaiah 2, um, with all those fantastic uh, texts that lead us to see Christ so clearly, uh, as in Isaiah uh, 53, uh, where... Um, our Lord is, um, is so clearly set before our eyes. Um, I was, um, when I first started off, I think I, I probably have told you a story before, but I'm, I don't care anymore. Um, the, um, when I was a student at the seminary for the summer, I had a summer job, uh, and it was called Galveston Beach Ministry. And um, my job was to go down the beach and talk to people, and I was, I was just nervous as could be, and I tried to delay and come up with every possible reason for why it is I shouldn't go out, and I, it was a rainy day, and I figured that there'd be nobody on the beach, so that would be a good day to start, and um, so I got out on the beach, and there was only one person, and um, he was Jewish, and it turned out that we had a conversation for about four or five hours, and finally at the end, he said, well, if you can show to me in the Bible where Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies, um, I maybe will believe you. And I said, let's look at Isaiah 53. He bore our sins and carried our sorrows. We deemed him stricken by God, smitten and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. All we... Uh, alike have gone astray, and God has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And of course, uh, Jewish uh, theologians say that that is actually the nation of Israel, not the Messiah, and that they see their role as supposedly in their sufferings that they are somehow all redeeming us. And you'll see in this, Luther has a certain degree of frustration with the Jewish scholars uh, because he has shown to them very clearly from the scriptures that Jesus is indeed the fulfillment of all the messianic prophecies and they refuse to believe. And Luther has come under a lot of criticism from historians for sometimes his rather severe comments um, towards the Jews. And uh, on the one hand, we don't ever want to go back in history and say, oh, yes, you know, our, our great confessor, Martin Luther, was without sin. Because if he is without sin, then um, I guess the only way to be able to know or understand the gospel would be to be a sinless people ourselves. Luther was in every respect sinful, and there wasn't anybody who confessed that more clearly about himself than Martin Luther. Um, but Luther's frustration uh, with the Jews had come on a twofold level. One was that he, when he learned Hebrew, um, he came into contact with a lot of the Jews that were living at that time uh, in this region, Erfurt in particular. 
And, um, and he found himself uh, at odds with them, differing with them uh, over this issue of Christ. But then also um, there was a huge push that was put on to convert uh, Christians into Judaism. And like in the, in the ancient days, they oftentimes, uh, the Jews were um, merchants in uh, rare metals. They were, you would you'd see a lot of silver and gold and such. And so because this was kind of a, a trade that they were engaged in, it was also a huge amount of banking and finances as well, um, they would come and they would sell their wares to very wealthy uh, women in particular. And, um, and as they were selling their wares, they were also, of course, uh, engaging in this so-called proselytization and um, in trying to convert people to Judaism and away from Christianity. And this also raised a lot of anger on a part of Luther because he felt kind of like the Jehovah's Witnesses or the Mormons are constantly hanging and banging on your doors and, and your pastor gets upset about the fact that these people are out there trying to be able to turn people away from the faith. And so uh, Luther's, Luther's comments oftentimes are not put into the proper context of understanding the historical circumstances of, of this. Um, but nevertheless, uh, Luther was also, at the end of his life, he was also um, uh, in great pain and suffering from his various ailments. As you know, right before he died, he had suffered a, quite a heart attack. Uh, and then he also had kidney stones. Now, if you ever want to teach a man what you ladies go through when you give birth to babies, just have him get kidney stones, and then he will love you for the rest of your life, <laughs> for the sacrifice that you have made. It is a painful thing, and Luther was going through those kinds of things, and so he probably was awfully irritable as well. Well, um, we are now going to look at uh, Isaiah chapter 28, this beautiful text in Isaiah 28, if you see, it's at the very top. See, I lay a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. The one who trusts will never be dismayed. Um, this uh, text is then repeated in 1 Peter chapter 2. And if we want to take our Bibles and go to 1 Peter, that would be great. We can see what it is that, um, that uh, the Apostle is using this text for. 1 Peter, chapter 2. I'm going to open this thing up. Uh-oh. There we go. And he got there, and the cupboard was bare. Uh, there's no marker. So imagine my finger... Um, there we go. Um, yeah, a little short on markers. Okay, let's look at chapter 2, verse, beginning at verse 4. As you have come to him, the living stone, rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. 
See, I lay in a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. It's a quote from Isaiah 28. Now, in, in, the, in the construction of a home, those of you that have ever had this, um, had to build, build in construction, ooh, thank you very much. Oh, well, <clears throat> yeah. Yeah, I used to be an athlete. Um, uh, the um, 3D mansion here. Here's the cornerstone, and from if a cornerstone was imperfect, then the foundation, which took its line off of that cornerstone, that would always also be imperfect. So when it was perfect, you laid the foundation this way, and you laid the foundation that way off of that cornerstone. And Luther says... This is the cornerstone for Jews and also for Gentiles. That Christ is the Savior both of Jews and also Gentiles. And he is that perfect cornerstone, the one that the Old Testament was pointing to, the one who now here in this New Testament era who now includes Gentiles in the church so that now, um, it's not perfect, so that now this new building will have a perfect foundation as well. See, I lay in Zion. Now he goes on to say, Now to you who believe, this stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone and a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you, this is you, and you guys here, are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God, once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Such a beautiful text that we have now been incorporated into this temple of God, if you will. Jesus, we talk about the temple of the body of Christ or the church being the body of Christ. That we have now been incorporated as a gift of God into this uh, church that was here already this, this, these people of God of the Old Testament and now the people of God within the New. Okay, let's go back to 28.1. Isaiah 28. You got your Bibles there? Now, there's an awful lot of woe stuff in this text. So, um, I guess get yourself ready for uh, the law. Uh, those of you that were in first service, you heard a lot about the law of God. And um, the law is there. Uh, we can't deny it. It's something that we have to take seriously. The law is condemning. It reveals to us a God of wrath and anger. And we don't like that. 
That's not something that appeals to us. It doesn't seem to appeal especially to the world. But it is the prelude. It's the prelude to the wonderful news of the gospel that God has put away his anger in Christ and that in him we have this shelter from the storm that would overcome us. So uh, in chapter 28, verse 1, Woe to that wreath, the pride of Ephraim's drunkards, to the fading flower, his glorious beauty, set on the head of a fertile valley, to that city, the pride of those laid low by wine. Now, um, what does Luther say about this? He said, By these images, the prophet censures their presumption, confidence, and smugness in riches and resources, and what did I type out there? Flowers. I don't know in which they felt excessively smug and made their boast against the most godly admonitions and threats of all the prophets. Um, now we want to picture in our minds the city of Jerusalem and how Jerusalem is prospering. You talk about a country that prospers. Probably no country in the history of the world has prospered more than ours, right? And we say to ourselves, can you imagine anybody ever invading us? Can you imagine a war like they had in Europe? Can you imagine the Soviet Union killing 50 million of our people while they killed 50 million of theirs? We sit back and go, no, we're expecting that life is going to be perfect here. Right? And of course, we drink our wine and feast so wine actually became a metaphor for kind of this licentiousness of life, this not just drinking wine, but being drunk. When you're drunk, you don't care about who's coming in the back door. When you're drunk, you're not prepared for battle. When you're drunk, you are indifferent to your surrounding. You think that everybody around you is going to think it's okay for you to be drunk. He uses that as the metaphor or maybe a simile to be able to warn people who are living in this false kind of security with you know, wealth and smugness and we don't need God and we don't care who he is and all that kind of stuff. Is that happening today? Are we seeing that? Do you think that maybe our world today has become less religious? Would you think? Or are we just looking back in time and saying to ourselves, life was a lot better when I was growing up. I, I was just talking with this pastor. Um, his name was um, Walter Otten. I don't know if you, any of you have ever heard of Walter Otten, but the Otten family, pretty well known in the Synod. One, one, of, the, one of these Ottens is the guy who authors the thing called Christian News. But Walter Otten um, grew up in, a, in an era uh, when the Missouri Synod was just busting at the seams. And people were having big families, and because they had big families, the churches were full. Uh, they did not have the same kinds of distractions. They didn't even have the same kind of wealth that we have today. And he said, you know, they'd open up a church in Chicago and they'd just be pouring in the doors left and right. 
I think they said at one time the Missouri Synod, 80% of the Missouri Synod lived within 500 miles of Chicago. Just huge populations, Wisconsin, Minnesota, Iowa, Illinois, Missouri, Missouri Synod, and large, large, I mean, they just couldn't, couldn't uh, stop growing the church. Thousands of new congregations, especially after the war. And now they're beginning to say, what's happening in our country isn't just that we're having a, a breakdown of religion, it's also that the population is it's not growing anymore. We're, we're, we're not seeing the same kinds of families that we used to see, the numbers. One of the reasons being what, that people are getting married later in life. The other reason being probably such things as divorce. I, you know, I, again, we, we think that we lived in, there in paradise. I was uh, talking to a friend the other day. I was five years old, and I think that I walked about seven or eight blocks to go play with somebody and nobody was watching. I'm going, Mom, what were you doing or what were you thinking? I, I mean, it was such a safe world. You're not supposed to talk to strangers, but you just go outside and play, right? Nowadays, nobody dares put their kids outside by themselves for very long, certainly not without being an eye shot. But uh, the world was a, a little different place. And now things are getting tighter and tougher, and yet there's an indifference. There's an indifference there. And it's not you guys, obviously, right? But are we indifferent about the indifferent? Do we know who's not here? Oh, I, if I, if I didn't feel like it would be good if I didn't send you away with a little bit of guilt. <laughs> you wouldn't, you, life wouldn't be good. Well, he's, he's going after, you know, when, when, the, when the bombs start falling from heaven, they fall over everybody. We're living in a world today, too, that is so prosperous and so smug with our riches and our resources that God sees us as being people who are drunk. Drunk, we're not sober. 28, verse 5, I'll read it. In that day the Lord Almighty will be a glorious crown, a beautiful wreath for the remnant of his people. Now, they keep going back and forth when you're reading the scriptures. Remember we say we discern between law and gospel? The law is there. It's condemning. It's showing us our sin. It's telling us what we should do or be, not be, and so on. And all of a sudden... Here's this beautiful promise that God gives to his people. And, and, and you, you're just wondering, how in the world can you be going back and forth between that and this? How can you show law and then gospel? Well, this is the gospel promise. Luther writes what? <clears throat> Why don't you read it with me on that 28 verse 5 with the Luther quote. The remnant of the people, not the whole people, but the few who remained, these had God as their crown and glory. That is, they trusted in him as their God. And there was always this remnant, a remnant among the people. And even when they were carried away into captivity, these were the people who remained. Okay. Um, 28 verse 6. 
Um, why don't you read it with me as well? Verse 6. He will be a spirit of justice to him who sits in judgment, a source of strength to those who turn back the battle at the gate. Um, Luther says, as formerly they were insatiable drunks, having a spirit of laziness and disorder, now having the Lord by faith, they learn the spirit of justice. They will speak and do justice, that which is just, and this they have been taught by the Lord's chastening. Now this is a, an abiding theme of Luther. That word chastening, um, what's the fastest way for a father to spoil his child? Spare the and spoil the child. Now it's uh, use the rod and go to jail. Uh, that, that, that form of punishment is no longer deemed to be, I think, socially acceptable. But the stick, the word even in the Greek for the, ch the pice, the paideus, uh, a child from kind of the age of 5 until maybe the age of 13, 12, 13, they called that, they saw that as the era when you would use this chastening stick. When they're younger, you, you know, you, you, if you use a stick on a kid that's before that age, all they understand is that they're being punished. They don't learn anything from it. But in that middle age, when you don't understand everything, when you don't understand why it is that you have to come in, you know, uh, before 10 o'clock or whatever it might be, the reason why it is that you need to be able to obey your parents, the reason why you need to do these things, you oftentimes don't understand. So, the parent, when the kid steals, he takes the stick and whacks the kid on the hand. If the kid becomes mouths off, I have a test. How many of you know what it means to have your mouth washed out with soap? <laughs> Raise your hand. How many of you have never tasted the divine punishment of soap in your mouth? Oh, you, you, uh, you, you, it, it is, it's a good way to cure bad words. Um, the, um, the, um, <clears throat> yeah, well, chastisements are there for the purpose of teaching out of love. And he says that these chastisements of God lead you eventually to recognizing and understanding justice so that you see and understand and actually receive from God his, his justice. All right. Um, 28, verse 7. If we read it. And these also stagger from wine and reel from beer. Priests and prophets stagger from beer. They are befuddled with wine. They reel from beer. They stagger when seeing visions. They stumble when rendering decisions. You can see that they had Super Bowls back in those days too. <laughs> Parties. No, um, this is not just that, that the, I mean, it's a, it's a metaphor, but one can well imagine that these were people who actually were getting intoxicated quite regularly. But Luther says the words drunk and drunkenness are used in the scriptures particularly for those who presumptuously trust and boast in themselves, teaching nothing certain 
and being uncertain themselves. How many times, uh, let me finish this first. They teach faith where they should teach what? Works. Everybody reading this? Works where they should teach faith. They are, I I find this to be rather strange. They are coarse asses who preach nothing certainly and distinguish neither law nor gospel. But I thought that language was kind of coarse, don't don't you think? Uh, Luther uses the word asses um, like we would say a jackass. Um, It sounds kind of harsh, but it gets the point across. You know, you can just kind of see this donkey that doesn't want to do anything, that doesn't listen, that doesn't obey, you know, that's doing nothing but making noise, braying across the fence at you if you didn't quite feed him at the right time. Luther says, these are the coarse asses who preach nothing certainly and distinguish neither law nor gospel. So if you don't distinguish the law or the gospel, what happens? Right? If you don't, if, if, if the law, if everything is just law, you could never, ever be certain of your salvation, right? You can never know whether or not you did enough. If it's works, if it's deeds, have you done enough? Now, we don't mean to be particularly critical of any church body like the Roman Catholic Church that will go unnamed. Um, but uh, I got this pamphlet once um, they have a, a, a course that they teach in the Roman Catholic Church, RCI, RCAI or IA or something like this. And if you were going to become a Roman Catholic, you would go through this course. And, uh, of course, naturally what they do is they have a theologian named, by the name of John Newhouse who was a Lutheran who came into the Roman Catholic Church. He's dead now. Came into the Roman Catholic Church and they use his pamphlet to try to convince all these Lutherans that they should become Roman Catholics. But in those pamphlets that they have, I had a chance to see them, they state in there that no one can be certain of their salvation. They said not even the Pope can be certain that he's going to heaven. Now, it helps to be able to have kind of a doctrine of purgatory because I guess it's kind of like, it's kind of like saying when we were, when we were in track the coach would say, all right, I want you to go out and I want you to run a four-minute mile. And we'd say, go, okay. Oh, you know, and you get to the end, and he'd say, well, that wasn't a four-minute mile. Do it again. Uh, I'll guarantee you the time, the second time, was worse than the first time, and so on and so forth. Well, here you are, you're the spiritual athlete, and you're going to be able to do all these good works for your salvation. But you've got purgatory, so supposedly you're going to have another 10,000 years to make it right in purgatory. Well, that's, that's, that's not the way it works. You're going to never be able to know, for one thing, that you've ever done enough in order to be able to make it into heaven. And, of course, that presumes that there are works that you do to get, get there. And Luther, the Reformation, what it means to be Lutheran is that we understand the law is good. We still want to run that cotton pick and mile, whatever it is, even if how, how imperfect it might be. But we, it teaches us to know that Christ did it for us. Have you ever see, did you ever see that, um, that uh, 
movie, sorry you guys, movie, um, with uh, Brad Pitt where he plays Achilles. Uh, it's called Troy, I think. Did you see it? Well, they, what they do is they, 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 they have these armies that are kind of at the early part where they have these two kings that come together and they realize that if they just fought a battle, they're going to kill all their people. You know, they're, they're, all these people die, all these people die, and then even if you win, it's kind of a pyrrhic victory, you, you have nothing left because everybody's dead. So they decide that they're going to actually have two of their best uh, fighters come out and they will fight against each other and whoever wins, that king then gets to have conquer the other king. So um, the, whatever the other people, our barbarians come out and he chooses his guy and the guy comes out looking like Goliath, you know, just, you know, teeth drooling and, you know, kind of this uh, eating guy, you know, big muscles, you know. And then the Greeks put out Achilles. And you'd think, this is no contest. And the, the other king is just kind of laughing because they're going to win. And Achilles comes running up, leaps high into the air, and drives his spear right through this guy and knocks him dead with one stroke. And, of course, he's this unbelievable warrior, but, you know, according to mythology, he was invincible. The only place of his whole body was his heel. Remember the Achilles heel? Well, it's the only place where he was vulnerable. But he was a fantastic warrior. He wins everything for the Greeks. Our theology is that Christ has won everything for us. He has destroyed death, sin, and hell. And if you can't come back to people and give them security and hope, then what you have is you have this drunkenness. Oh, I don't know. I'm not certain where it might be. It's a possibility. Keep doing this. By the way, let's just go have some more wine. That's the theology that Luther is facing, and he wants to destroy. They don't discern the difference between law and gospel. Okay. So, um, as if we don't have enough stuff to, um, speaking of course things, 28.8, all tables are full of vomit. No place is without filthiness. Now, there again, Luther is... Isaiah is probably looking at the fact that these people drink to excess. You've heard of the Roman well, right? Where the Romans, the, these, um, the feast of Bacchus, is it Bacchus? 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 Um, they, would, uh, they would get together and they would have these feasts where they would drink and they would eat. And then, of course, just like all of us, you get full, Right? So what do you do if you want to keep feasting and drinking? You go out to a well and you vomit. You stick your finger down your throat and you vomit all your food out and then you go back and you eat and drink more. Now you think, this is kind of crazy. I mean, this, this is, um, this, is uh, uh, this gluttony is what it's called uh, to excess. But Luther uh, says, if you, Isaiah says, this is exactly the kind of thing, the tables are full of vomit. Luther, the more ignorant they are, the wiser they appear to themselves. Those who are weaned from the milk, those taken from the breast, that's taken from the text. Luther says, the word of God is grasped particularly by the little ones and the simple. 
for it is the word of life, of hope, of strength, of joy, of grace. Therefore, it is accepted by none but the dying, the despairing, the weak sinners, and those weaned entirely from the flesh. The unweaned tyrants who rely on their own resources do not accept it, but rather persecute it. Only the poor accept it. And now we have to say to ourselves, what are we supposed to thank God for? Now, it is true. Thank Him for His food. Thank Him for His drink. Thank Him for our daily lives, our daily bread, right? But do we thank Him for the trials and the tribulations that He lays upon us in our lives? Do we thank Him for the crosses that He imposes upon us? When He humbles us and He makes us realize that we are but dust? Do you ever stop to think about who's going to be visiting your grave after you're dead? Well, maybe once a year, maybe your family, but in a matter of just a few years, we're just going to be forgotten. On that note, let us conclude. <laughs> in the end, it's God, isn't it, that matters. And when everything is given back to us again, that's what matters. And yet sometimes it's only the patokoi. These are, what's that, that's hymn of ours, Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. I have got no riches with which to purchase or to buy God's favor. I'm poor. That guy that converted, that brought uh, Solzhenitsyn and converted him, he was a Jewish Christian in a, a Siberian prison camp. He made the statement to Solzhenitsyn, he said, I have come to realize that there is nothing that can happen to me in my life for which I could not point backwards and say this is the just punishment for my sins. Nothing, even being in a Siberian concentration camp, is just for people who are patokoi, poor. And then if we put that in perspective, then all of a sudden the grace of God looks awfully good. Yeah. So we've got to be careful. Now this, um, here a little. Here a little, there a little. Do, 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 28, 10. Um, for it is do and do, do and do, rule and rule, rule and rule, a little here, a little there. Now this is a, it's, it, it is true that this is how legalists are. They, uh, it's always do and do and do and do and do and do. You've got to do this, got to do that, got to do this. But Luther actually sees even deeper. He sees this also as the reason for why it is that people reject the faith. Paul said, God's, he said to, the, to these Pharisees, God's word is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. God's name. God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles. It means that when you're a legalist, like the Pharisees, you know, where, they, where they're sitting there going, you healed a person on the Sabbath. You can't do that. That's not right. 
They have no compassion whatsoever for the person who, has, who was, had, was ill, the person who had this withered hand. If Jesus did something on the Sabbath for a person, like a person made a person walk who has been lame, or a woman who had had an issue of blood for 14 years and she touches the hem of his garment, they could get mad about that. Well, I don't know about you, but I don't want to have anything to do with a religion like that. Do and do, do and do. Not only is it a bad religion of law, but it's also something that creates an offense to people. And this is what Luther says. So today our papists say, now they're, see, they're, they're, they're criticizing Lutherans. Creed, creed, decalogue, decalogue. These heretics can do nothing but teach these things and not the doctrine of the church. They were saying that about Lutherans. Lutherans were saying what? Ten Commandments, that's the Decalogue. Let's look at the Ten Commandments. Let's see what it is that God wants us to do. Don't go beyond the commandments. Don't make up new commandments. Don't make up traditions of men. Just look at the Decalogue and then look at the Creed. And what do they say in that Creed? That Jesus Christ, true God, begotten of the Father from eternity, also true man, born of the Virgin Mary, is my Lord, who has redeemed me, a lost and condemned person, purchased and won me from all sin, death, and power of the devil, not with gold or silver, but with his holy precious. <sighs> Did you guys get confirmed? <laughs> but with his holy precious blood and his innocent suffering and that I may be his own, live under him in his kingdom, and serve him in everlasting righteousness, innocence, and blessedness, even as he is risen from the dead, lives and reigns to all eternity. This is most... Oh, you were confirmed. At least you got the end of it right. This is... But, look at that. This is most certainly not we kind of think so. Not maybe. Not possibly. This is. And that's the kind of thing that they criticized because Lutherans were coming along and saying, just look at the Decalogue and look at the Creed, law and gospel. He goes on to say, in these words, the prophet rebukes such ungodly people who neither obeyed the commandments nor looked to the promises. The flesh cannot bear the cross for one hour, but hates it. Therefore, the word that brings the cross is turned away, and thus such a man accepts neither teaching nor admonitions. You know, this, 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 if you want to understand the cross, you read Luther. And I say that because, you know, a, 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 a good theologian is a father in the faith. We all know what a good father is, right? When we were raised with good fathers, good fathers would, would take what was happening in the world and they interpret it for their kids and they give them guidelines and at the same time they give them a one-sided unconditional love. Luther had this power of being able to tell people exactly what they needed to hear at the same time that his goal in everything was the preaching of the gospel, the forgiveness of sins in Christ, the hope of everlasting life, the certainty of knowing that we are justified by grace through faith in Christ. So uh, you, have to, you have to see this in Luther's passion as he reads and interprets this text. We're getting down to about 10 minutes here, and we've got a lot to cover. Um, okay. Um, 28.12, to whom he has said, this is rest, give rest to the weary Luther. They have preachers who have the divine command to revive and comfort the afflicted, 
with the word of consolation because God wants his preachers to be comforters and they should always preach the forgiveness of sins to troubled consciences. How do you get a troubled conscience? How do you get one? The law, right? And, and that always brings a cross. How many of you here love to be able to hear all the things that you've done wrong? <laughs> Raise your hands. Uh, we don't like that. Our flesh doesn't like it. Our flesh doesn't like to deal with the imperfections of who we are. But he says, you know, you take up that cross and you come to discover the wonderful comfort that comes by the gospel. And that's our job. Um, as a church, you have to remember this. As a church, we, there should never be a Sunday where you do not walk out of this congregation knowing, believing, and taking comfort in the forgiveness of your sins. Um, there is, however, I have to confess, one thing this day for which I anticipate sinning when I leave this church. Yeah, uh, little Carolyn sold me Girl Scout cookies, and they've got four boxes in my office right now, and I'm going to eat those cookies when I leave. And, um, that's um, thank you for uh, leading me into the pathways of badness. All right. The word of the Lord that they may go and fall backward and be broken. They may, they, he, Luther says, they make no, no progress. As I myself experienced with the most learned Jews, these remained in their opinions alone even though they were refuted by me. Thus the papists, having abandoned faith, have venerated sex, works designed to gain righteousness, vigils, cowls, you know, that's that thing that you wear around, around your neck, and even their own lice. I, I, I like Luther. He always has a vivid way of speaking. Invoking the aid of unknown saints and have fallen not only away from God, but in opposition to God and snared. Luther, as we saw in the case of the papists and monks who said, the more burdensome the monastic order becomes, the happier I am. See, what had happened was Luther, Luther would say, it's, yeah, a Christian, it's natural for us as Christians to have to bear crosses, okay? But we don't go out and create a cross in order to be able to magnify ourselves or pat ourselves on the back. Look at how I'm suffering. He said the monastic order was basically created so that people could go and impose suffering upon themselves and then they'd say, look at all the good deeds that I'm doing for God. Look at how I'm suffering. So you see, we're not, as Lutherans, we're not, mas we're not sadom what do you call sadomasochists? Masochists. We're not here for the purpose of imposing suffering upon ourselves, which God does not call for us to do. There are enough crosses that life gives, imposes upon us that we just simply have to deal with that, but we don't impose them upon ourselves. Then he goes on and he quotes one of the great fathers of the uh, Roman Catholic Church. He goes on and says... <clears throat> The more burdensome the monastic order becomes, the happier I am. Thus they cannot be called away from their own ungodly ways, but they interpret their punishments 
as a cross and their successes as merits. So Thomas Aquinas, if you ever know, Thomas Aquinas is kind of view, viewed as the great spiritual father of both philosophy and also theology in the Roman Catholic Church. He said, one who enters a monastery undertakes a baptism, and as often as he renews his daily vows, he is renewed in his baptism. So you better stay there, buddy, and you better suffer, because only by accepting that suffering are you going to be saved. And he has a great quote here that follows. Uh, 2815, I'll just read what Luther says. Thus the monk says, if I, kept, if I have kept my vow, I cannot possibly be lost. And he draws the conclusion, everyone who has kept this rule has eternal life. Their fear, faith, fear, and the word of God are neglected, and they rely on their traditions, convinced that if they keep these, neither death nor hell can harm them. They say, why should God punish us who serve him with works, affections, and even murder. In other words, they, they even killed Lutherans. How God ought to cater to us obedient ones. So the whole monastic system was set up to supposedly you could save yourself by the way that you suffered in the monastic system. When we were over in Germany to this place that we brought our kids last time, they said, the average age of the monk, they, they never lived beyond the age of 50. Their life was so severe, they were constantly cold, they were walking around barefoot all the time, they were getting very measly meals, they were having to work excessively. They were dying. They basically were murdering each other with their, with their, with their, with their this monastic type system. Do you suppose that there might be some kind of wonderful thanksgiving that people had when Luther came and said, this is not, you're not, you don't have to earn your salvation, you don't have to suffer for God. And he said, there are crosses. But anyway, verse tw uh, chapter 28, we've got just a couple of minutes here. Um, I am laying in Zion a, uh, a foundation stone. We're going back to this. He says, the text must carefully be considered in the basis of its explanation by the apostles, namely, that Christ is the stone not sand, so that we may be most solidly built on Christ, as St. Peter says, etc. This stone thus established is built upon the one who has confidence in the true word of God. A tested stone. Now he, that makes an interesting twist here. He says the Hebrew word, which is for that tested stone, means a tester, so that Christ is a tested stone, that is, distressed and afflicted, or he is a testing stone, that is, a stone by whose shape all other stones are tested, so that we may be conformed to the image of the Son of God. He is testing us with him. Cornerstone. Luther says in Ephesians, Paul says in Ephesians 2.14, that Christ has broken down the dividing wall between two people and has made the cornerstone of the two walls, uniting them in one building, that is, the church. He who believes will not be in haste or put to shame. Luther says, let all works by which we aim to gain righteousness and all our merit depart, because we are built on the foundation, not by doing works, but by what together? Therefore, let every godly man, 
terrified by sin, run to Christ as the mediator and propitiator. Anybody ever use that word on a common basis? Um, when you get into a, a fight with your wife, just say, honey, be propitiated to me, and I'm sure that everything will work out just fine. <laughs> to propitiate is to satisfy the wrath of the anger. So Christ, as our propitiator, offers up his life in exchange for ours. He becomes the payment. He is, his life, his blood, actually turns away the wrath of God. Kind of like the Passover, when that blood is put upon the doorpost and the angel of death passes over. That's it. That lamb propitiates the anger of God towards the sinful world. And this is what Christ has done for us. Okay, I'm going to sound, sound like a, a, one of those people who um, uh, is at auctions reading really fast. When the overwhelming scourge passes through, Luther says, Thus you see that the ungodly are elated and exalted in good times, but despair in bad times. Christians, on the other hand, fear God and are safe in both good times and in bad times. And I think this is important for us. We remember because our world goes up and down and up and down and there are good times and there are bad times. But guess what? And take note, he says, the more a hypocrite has accustomed himself to his own righteousness, the more he is driven to despair. And the more a man falls outwardly and is wounded in his conscience, the more he lets go of himself and is driven to Christ. Therefore, it is true that many people go to heaven from the, um, yeah, that's supposed to be from the gallows. Many more people go to heaven from the gallows than from the church cemetery. He can't. You understand that? Uh, when you're about to be hung, you're, you're ready to repent. When you're, when you're, in this, you're just buried in the cemetery, well, it's well, anyway. Luther always knows how to turn a phrase. And Christ says, quote, the tax collectors and the harlots go into the kingdom of God before you. Fools, this is my favorite quote, fools must be de-loused with clubs. <laughs> you got to get those those lice out of a guy's, just get a club out and hit him in the head. 28, 26, God will teach his own Luther, so Christ plows his church and his own with extreme persecution and affliction, namely so that he may sow a body to our flesh and that an imperishable body may sprout and rise up. So when you feel plowed, not by drinking, um, <laughs> But when you feel plowed, understand that God is doing nothing but sowing the seeds of Christ. Ah, oh, that Luther, he what a stinker. Okay, let's close with a prayer. Dear Lord and Savior, we pray that we too may rightly discern law and gospel, that we may be driven to you to realize that we are imperfect, that our holiness is not sufficient, that we are unable to claim anything before you on the basis of our own works or deeds, but that we may now find Christ and find in him our righteousness, our hope, our everlasting salvation, that when the day of our death arrives, that we may not claim anything of ourselves, but with confidence go into that time of darkness and death, knowing full well that we should simply awake and be with you in paradise, that our bodies will be raised again, and that all saints, all who have died in you, 
are going to experience the great reward because you have done everything for us. In Jesus' name we pray.